Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. I am truly honored and excited to welcome my friend, Liz Elding, to Leave Your Mark. Thank you so much, Elisa, for having me with you today. I'm so excited to be here, and it's been so much fun spending time with you recently. Wonderful. I know. It's so great. It's so great. So for everyone listening, Liz has the most incredible story. First of all, she's the founder and CEO of the Elizabeth Elting Foundation. She's an entrepreneur, business leader, languophile, philanthropist, feminist, and mother. And after living, studying, and working in five countries across the globe, Liz founded Transperfect out of an NYU dorm in 1992 and served as CEO, as co-CEO until 2018. For those of you who are not familiar, this is the world's largest language solutions company with over $1.1 billion in revenue and offices in more than 100 cities worldwide. But Liz, that is like the beginning, but what you have been able to do through your foundation to me is even more impressive and we're going to get into that. But of course, you've been awarded incredible recognition by, of course, your alma mater, NYU Stern. You have done so much for the American Heart Association and you got the 2020 Health Equity Leadership Award, the Alliance of Women Entrepreneurs 2021 Vertex Award. I mean, the list goes on and on. And you have this new book, Dream Big and Win, that we have had the pleasure of working on together. And I'm so excited to interview you formally on Leave Your Remark because one of the things that I found so inspiring about your entrepreneurial journey is that you didn't invent something new. And I'd love to start a little bit about this concept of finding a problem to solve and thinking about it in a new way. So take us through. Okay, absolutely. And yes, by the way, it has been such a joy to work with you, Elisa. You've been so supportive on my book and you are the pro here. So thank you for all of that. And as I said, I'm thrilled to be here. But as far as your question, the important thing is don't confuse being an entrepreneur with being an inventor. You do not need to invent something entirely new to be wildly successful. And that was exactly what happened to me. And I can explain my story. Okay. Explain away. Okay. So I knew I loved languages. I studied four of them by the time I graduated from high school, majored in languages in college, then studied and worked in Spain and Venezuela after that, and had lived in Portugal and Canada as well. So loved languages. I then, after returning from Venezuela, got a job at a translation company, which was my dream, combining languages and business. And I loved it. Loved the industry, loved the people at the company. But during my time there, I just thought, wow, this could be done better. Such a fun industry, such an important industry. But I saw gaps between what clients needed and what was available in the industry and from our company. So just kept that idea in my head, went back to school, got my MBA from NYU Stern, and then shortly after getting my MBA, after a very brief stint in finance, started TransPerfect. And the idea was to do it better. 
And one last thing on that, at the time, there were 10,000 translation companies out there. So we were not the only one. And that really is evidence that you don't need to invent something entirely new. It's wow. just about doing it differently and better. And that was the idea, to be a pioneer in the industry and create the world's largest. I actually just got chills when you said that, because I guess my question would be, when you were sort of seeing these gaps and comparing like what could be and you thought to yourself, I can do it better. How did you do the mental gymnastics around mapping out what could be better? And then I'm sure any customer service person can tell you people call all day about their complaints of how things could be better with a company. But then taking that to build something on your own, like, did you want to be an entrepreneur in the first place? I hadn't thought of it. That wasn't my plan. <laughs> I came across this translation company after returning from Venezuela. And I thought, wow, how perfect is this? Languages, business, this will be where I can have my career. And as I said, I loved it, but the organization was relatively flat. It was about 90 people at the time. It was the largest in the industry, but 90 people, there's only so far to go. And as I said, I saw gaps. I, for example, because I had worked first in production and then in sales, a client would call up and say, okay, I need to get this 10-page document translated. How quickly can you do it? And I would have to say a week because that's what we were told. But I knew it could be done in two days. And if that's what the client wanted, we needed to be able to do that. Or a client would say, what deliverables do you have? What softwares can you return this in? I had to tell them WordPerfect or Microsoft Word because that was what we had back in the day. Or Finally, there were a lot of services we didn't offer. And I thought, wow, we could be a one-stop shop for language solutions. Wow. And so those were some of the things, along with having an office in every major city around the world and a number of other things to really create a company along the lines of a top-tier investment bank or law firm. That was the thought. But no, it was an accident. It was just because of a need I saw, a problem that needed to be solved. So- Obviously, you got your degree, so you had a lot of business background at that point to really begin this company. But as you sort of dove into this process, this entrepreneurial journey, you didn't really have anyone to look toward as far as mentorship. And I know you bought a ton of books to try to like figure out how to do this. What did you find available to you? And what did you feel like you were missing at that time? Sure. I did buy whatever books I could get my hands on. And they were how-to business books, sometimes started by entrepreneurs who had been developing their company for a long time, building it, and they talked about what to do. But I felt they were missing something. I felt they were very dry. They didn't talk about their mistakes, what they learned from what they did right and what they did wrong. And they didn't have the human element. I couldn't relate to them. They weren't vulnerable. They weren't authentic. They weren't entertaining. And even back then, when I was all business, all the time, I wanted someone I could relate to. And that's what I tried to create with Dream Big and Win. Sort of a beach read, business read, something that you can pick up and really have fun reading. And okay. learn a I lot along that. the way. A beach read, business read is, I've actually never heard someone say that. That is brilliant. Because they're not yeah. usually beach reads, Right. They're not. And I really wanted that even back then when, as I said, I was all business. And certainly now, you know, it's fun to read bios, right? Where people are talking about themselves 
And then along the way, all the business lessons they learned. And so that was the idea. So as you sort of plotted this path and this journey, I know there were times that you questioned what you were doing. And when you're so deep in to this journey of entrepreneurship, like how did you coach yourself through the challenging times of building the business? Right. That's a, that's a great question because I think all entrepreneurs go through it. It gets really hard. I mean, it's hard when you start, when you don't have the clients and it's hard along the way for so many reasons, the growing pains, right? You work so hard to get the clients and then maybe you have them and then you can't bring in the right employees or you can't retain them because it's hard to keep them happy and deliver for the client. So there are all kinds of challenges along the way. And I kept telling myself, if I work today like no one else will, I can live tomorrow like no one else can. So I stuck with it. And now I say, I, if I work today like no one else will, I will. I can live and give tomorrow like no one else can. But just really kept pushing myself through it. And I think that's really the key in being a successful entrepreneur. The people who make it, they stick with it. They don't quit no matter how hard it gets. And it, and it pays off and it, it's worth it. I mean, it, it's worth it. One of the things you say in the book is no one will value you if you don't first value yourself. And I know throughout your career, you have definitely felt what it's like to be a woman in business. Can you tell us a little bit about Liz, the phone is ringing. <laughs> yes, I will. And when you asked, you know, did I plan to be an entrepreneur? I really didn't. Because as I mentioned, I had the time at the translation company, loved it, went back to business school. And I thought, okay, translation is fun, but I need a real career. Who knows what I could really be if I make my career in the translation world. So went back to school, got my MBA from NYU and majored in finance and international business. And I did that because I thought, finance. That sounds very practical. And I'm very ambitious. It's very lucrative. I think I can make a lot of money. And 70% of the people at the time at NYU Stern majored in finance. So I ended up getting a job doing, or what was supposed to be doing, equity arbitrage at a French bank. I thought, how perfect. Finance combined with my love for that, which is international. So showed up my first day, and I quickly saw, wow, I'm the only woman here. And I didn't expect that. Our class at Stern was 40% women. But I thought, okay, I can do this. I like men. <laughs> I love <laughs> men, actually. I've been pretty boy crazy over the years. But what happened was whenever the phone rang, the guys would yell. Everyone would yell, Liz, phone. And I just thought, oh, my God. Here I am. I have all this ambition. I'm willing to work hard. But I did and not. And you have an MBA, by Actually, the way. MBA, well, you know, was I, you know, the highest paid receptionist out there? I mean, uh, yeah, it was not for me. It was not for me. I didn't appreciate that. And then the funny thing is, I thought, okay, I will just work really hard. I'll put in extra hours and then I'll, I'll go to my boss and say, what more can I do? And I did that. I said, hi, you know, I've finished my work. What more can I do? And he said, well, you can go in the supply closet and see what supplies are missing and then walk around to the guys and ask them what else they need. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. So what did you say to that? I just, I, I just said, okay, you got it. I'll do that. I was such a pleaser. And I thought, hmm, okay, 
you got it. I'll do it. So I did that. And then I stayed till midnight and finished all the other work. But the other big piece of it is I quickly learned that finance was not for me. It was putting numbers into a spreadsheet. It was number crunching. It was not for me. And I realized I didn't want my job and I didn't want any other job that any of these people had. So I thought, this is the perfect time. This is my aha moment. I don't like the culture and I don't like the industry. I'm going to go chase my dream and dream big and win. And that was when I decided to start Transperfect. And so what I did, I just said to my boss, I'm after four weeks, this was only four weeks. I said, I'm so sorry. I made a horrible mistake. How much time do you need? And he said, Liz, two weeks is fine. <laughs> he had had enough of me. But that was hard because I'm a big believer in winners never quit and quitters never win. I thought, how can I do this? But I had to. My heart said, you've got to do this. So let's go back to the title of the book for a second. And I have so many questions on this, but your whole mantra is really about dreaming big and winning. The idea of dreaming big though, so many people are scared to dream big. By the way, I am one of those people. I don't <laughs> dream big. So I, I'm just curious, what do you advise? You mentor so many people through your foundation. You help so many women. Like, what do you tell people who don't see themselves as someone who can dream big and win? You know what I think it is? I think it's because people are perfectionists and they don't want to fail. And I feel as though maybe because I've failed so many times, I make mistakes every time, you know, I... I'm willing to do it. And I think that's what everybody should get comfortable doing. And I do feel in this day and age, 20 somethings, there's a lot of pressure on them to be successful. And I think it's all about taking a risk, dreaming big. And if you do the right things, you're likely to make it. And you may not. And even if you don't, you'll get pretty close to what your ultimate goal was because you chased a big dream and you worked a lot harder and you set goals and you did everything you could to accomplish them. So you'll get pretty near close, if not there. And at the same time, you'll learn. You'll learn from the experience and you'll do better the next time. And it's just so much more interesting and fun than taking the safe route, unless the safe route happens to be your dream. <laughs> You're very good at setting goals and holding yourself accountable. What are your tactics in doing that? Yeah, I guess I am goal-oriented just because I, I like to have a goal and I like to accomplish it, but it depends what it is. I mean, certainly with my life, with exercise, I must walk five miles a day. It's just no ifs, ands, or buts. That's actually not that much. And a lot of people are probably doing a lot more and working out, but just no excuse, no letting myself off the hook. But I think the same goes for starting a company, whether you're in your 20s or in your 50s. It's really important to say, okay, in order to achieve my goals and set forth what your goal is, whether it's a million dollars in the first year or what it is, and then work backwards and figure out what you need to do to accomplish that goal. And in my case, it was make 300 phone calls a day and send out 300 letters a day and making sure I did that. And then as we grew, we did that as a company. And that's really what made it so we could scale and become a billion dollar business. But it's it's really discipline. And it sounds, you know, so unsexy. It's discipline. That's what it is. I know Warren Buffett says it too. And he he says a lot of very smart things, but he said that's the difference between people who 
accomplish something huge and people who don't. It's it's discipline. It's just, you know, putting the hobbies aside, putting the fun times with friends and family aside. The, the times in my 20s, I didn't get a share in the Hamptons. I mean, number one, I couldn't afford it. And number two, I, I didn't have time. But a lot of people have done that. And if you're doing something you love, if you're working with like-minded people, if what you're doing has a purpose, it's worth it. It's worth it. Let's talk about your end of day report. <laughs> yeah. Well, when it was just us, you know, just a few of us, I mean, what we did each day, we would put it in a report and make a note of all the calls we made, all the letters we sent out, all the meetings we set up, all the trade shows we either went to or were planning on going to. And we looked at them ourselves and we made sure we had made our goals. And then we required that of our people. And we ended up having over 600 salespeople and each one was required to do that. And they knew they had to hand it in at the end of the day and they just got used to it. They kept track of it as they went and it made them do more because they knew it would be looked at. And we all know action creates action. We learned quickly that perhaps to get one project, you need to send out a, a thousand letters. One of those projects was our first million dollar client. And then that million dollar client became a $6 million client a year later. So you never know which one it's going to be, but it's about volume and it's about making sure your salespeople produce volume. And then that turns in to the big business because you know one letter may result in one project, that project turns into multiple projects and the multiple projects turn into a, a long-term relationship. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because I think one of the things that you teach in Dream Big and Win is the idea that if the success of the company is dependent on you as the founder, without having that scalable sales team, yeah, it really is challenging to grow. So you share a little bit about your, your thoughts on that. Absolutely. And I think that is such a common challenge for entrepreneurs. They they actually have a great idea. Sometimes they build a great infrastructure, like great backend for a technology, a production team. They even go that far, which is not easy. But then they are the salesperson for their company. They are either the only salesperson or far and away the most important salesperson. And instead, even though, of course, you, you, the owner or the CEO may always be the most important, if it can only be one, if you scale it and you say, I'm going to build a world-class sales organization and the biggest sales team in my industry, then of course, inevitably you as the CEO will become less and less important. And that was a big part of our goal to replace ourselves from as early on as seemed possible, which was a couple of years into it. So that's so important. So important. It's so funny though, because even hearing you say our goal was to replace ourselves. Like in a weird way, that's like so juxtaposed with the idea of CEO, founder, ego, like most important person. But you actually flip that script, making the team the focus. And one of the things that I really admire about you is the way that you manage your team and the way that you let your people really be independent in what they're doing. Can you talk a little bit about your leadership style? Sure, absolutely. And I do think that's so important. I think it's a case of 
hiring the right people and looking for certain characteristics in the interviewing process and spending a good amount of time on that process. Because, I mean, I know this is really one of your specialties, Elisa, but finding the right people and how these people need to be, it's so important. You, you want a certain type of people and people who are very entrepreneurial, people who are proactive, problem solvers, ambitious, overachievers, curious, et cetera, and then setting it up so you give them their goals and and then over time they're coming up with the goals and they're saying these are these are my goals and my team's goals and then getting out of their way and that is incredibly rewarding for them and for the owner ceo and then of course compensating them that way so they make more money than they would at another company in your industry or perhaps another company anywhere in any industry and that's the idea when you were interviewing people was there a certain like favorite question that you sort of had as your secret weapon question that was like, in your mind, the difference between if this person is a yes or a no? Because I do think at a certain point, I don't forget who I was talking about this the other day, like at a certain point in the interview process, like there are a lot of people who can do the job, right? And at a certain point, there's that one or two question quiz where the answer that's given really is what seals the deal or doesn't. What were you curious about in your candidates when you were considering them for like this world-class team? Yeah, I love that question. That's a really great question because I did have one question I asked that people thought I was a little crazy to ask because I asked love it. <laughs> the I love it already. Time, <laughs> right. I, I The first time I realized I need to ask this question, and then for every person I ever hired, I, I asked it. And it, to me, is the bare minimum. It's it's not certainly not the only thing, but it's a complete requirement. And a lot of people failed on it. So what it was, was I say, have you ever worked like behind a counter, like with a cash register at an ice cream store, for example? And they'll say, oh, yes, actually, I have. And I think, well, that's great because I love people who've done that in any case because they're used to servicing people. They've had to work hard for their money. Though, you know, those jobs are tough. So I like it from that standpoint. But then I say to them, okay, in that capacity, do you ever see any other employee stealing money out of the cash register? Wow. And if you did, what did you do? And if you didn't, what would you do? And I said, what did you do or what would you do if you were the coworker, the manager, or the owner? And it was so interesting what people said. Wow. <laughs> and what I was looking for, well, I can tell you, I mean, what I was looking for is someone who acted like the owner, who had that ownership mentality, who, if they were the coworker, they, of course, told the person to put the money back if, if they were interacting, but they told their manager and the owner or if they were the manager, they told the owner, or if they were the owner, they terminated the person. The point is, there's no room for, you know, social work, working these things out. If someone is stealing from you, I mean, if you're the owner, or from your company, if you're the coworker, that's, that's no good. Integrity is the number one thing. And acting as if you own it is the other number one thing. I mean, the two go together, but integrity first and foremost, and then having a real own it mentality, acting as if you own the company, treating the company's money, the, treating the company's clients, treating the company's projects as if they're your own. So that's the idea behind that. But a lot of people did not say what I wanted to hear. And so, wow. that, them. so that was really interesting, actually. 
That is such a great question. That is such a scary question. And also <laughs> such a great question because it really does tell you so much about the person. Right. Because they would say something like, oh, well, maybe they were having financial difficulties. I, I might say, put it back, but don't do it again. And I just thought, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're not protecting the company. right? And, and it's surprising how many people did that because they just didn't think like an owner. So, so interesting. Wow. 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 Okay. So I know that if somebody tells you, you can't do something, it just <laughs> motivates you to do it more. Yeah. How do you push through projects or obstacles and think about problem solving when something seems so challenging and so impossible? And I know, you know, it always seems impossible till it's done, but how do you work through really big problems? I think I do what a lot of people do, which is just breaking it down, figuring out what needs to be done, and then pushing through it and, you know, sticking with it. And and then I think you get the adrenaline and you, you put aside everything else you need to for the goal and it pays off. A follow-up question to that, because I'm curious. So if you have like multiple things on multiple burners and there's problems everywhere, do you as a person tackle, like, do you say, okay, I'm going to take this one thing first and I'm going to do the whole thing and solve that one problem? Or are you sort of dabbling across different problems at the same time and juggling? I love that question because I kind of feel like I have that conversation and that debate with a lot of people in my life. And I'm an all-in kind of person. Like I need to just put everything else aside and be all in and focus only on that. And I, I say, focus, focus. When you focus intentionally, it's like magic and you get through it and you get done. So it's a case of prioritizing the most important one that needs to happen first, being all in, not getting distracted by other things and then accomplishing it and moving on. And I think that's the same concept with the business, right? Putting it first, I mean, doesn't mean it's more important than your, than your family. Business and family and putting aside other things for a period of time really does work. But certainly related to your question, that's how I do it. One of the things that you do, which is compartmentalize, you know, work, personal, family, I do the same thing. A lot of people have a problem doing that. It's not a core competency for people. So yeah. when you think about how you compartmentalize and throughout your career, especially as you were building, how did you organize your thoughts to like be able to do that? Yes. And I love that because yes, I mean, I don't mean to act like it's all work all the time because that is appealing to no one. And it was appealing to me. It was more for a period of time you do that, but then you get to a point in your life. And I've been at that point a very long time. And I think maybe you have too, where you have to compartmentalize. You say, okay, between these hours, eight and six, I'm going to work intensely. I'm not going to get distracted. And it's going to be all about results. I think that's the key. Results, results, results. And you have ways to measure yourself with your goals and making sure you accomplish your goals. And the same goes for the people you're working with or the people who are working you know, alongside you and making it clear to them what their goals are and what results you're looking for. And they need to do that but you're not counting their hours. And then I think the really important thing is at the end of the business day, whatever time it is, six, to say, let's say six, shutting down 
and being all about your family or whatever other things, your friends, whatever other outside interests you have and enjoying that. And then, you know, sometimes if you have a really, you know, a job that is a lot of hours, you might need to get back online at whatever, 10, 10, 30 briefly, but for a half hour, hour, whatever it is to get caught up. But the reason I found that to be so important, certainly I knew I would have a nervous breakdown if I didn't do that. And my family was super important to me as it is to all of us. But secondly, the people who work alongside us, the people who work for us, if they see the boss doing that or their manager or their coworkers doing that, they think to themselves, well, I'm never going to want to stay at this company or I'm never going to want to be promoted here. I'll have no life. And that's right. So that I learned and it was better for me personally, but it was also so much better for our people and the culture. That's really, really good advice. Thank you. Let's talk about your 5149 rule. (laughs) So decisions have always been difficult for me. It's one of my weaknesses. I've had plenty of trouble and they're usually kind of silly things. They're not the big decisions in life. They're the silly little decisions. But I try to tell myself, okay, if it's 51% or more, and it usually isn't 100%, it's pretty much never 100%. It's like, well, this is maybe 51, 52, maybe 60% better. Going with it. Going with it as soon as you possibly can. And then acting like it's 100%. Going all in and act like that other thing was not even a possibility. So I need to remind myself of that because you know, that has always been a challenge for me, but it is my role. And then the other thing that I like to say about 5149 is with ownership. I mean, I, I talk about this in my book and I'll just mention it because I think I I believe in 5149 both in terms of decisions. And if you have a co-owner, you don't want to be 50-50. <laughs> I was 50-50 for 26 years. And if by chance you are 50-50 owners with, you know, one other partner, make it so you're the deciding vote if you can. And of course, make sure you have a shareholders agreement. That's a whole other piece of it. But it's very hard when it's you and another person and there's no way to resolve deadlock. There's no decision maker. It can be very challenging. That's good advice. And you know, it's so funny because people, you know, when you have a co-founder, well, it's more fun to have a co-founder, right? And then you go into it and you think like, we're going to do this together. And it's always amazing in the beginning. But you're right. If you're equal, then where do you go when you disagree? Yes. And I think we might have set a record for having a company with 26 years. Well, actually, once I litigated, I got what I asked for. And I did finally have a tiebreaker in there. But the point is, yes, for until I got that result, which was 23 years after we started, wow. uh, every day. And, you know, in the beginning, yes, it's more fun. You're thinking you have complementary skills, you'll work it out. But inevitably, over time, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So it's really important to have either a tiebreaker for the two of you or one of you being in the decision-making position. There are a lot of people that I know who either consult at startups or want to start something. And a lot of startups are of the mindset, like, we can't pay you, but we can give you equity. And I always used to joke with people, I'm like, well, 5% of $0 is still zero, right? What would you advise people who are being offered equity in a company versus actually compensation from the start? Perhaps they can go back 
to their boss and propose something else. Other things that we did were very low draw, as low draw as someone is willing to take, but high upside. So high commission that never sunsets. So meaning going back to them and saying, I understand we don't have money, but if I sell, then can I make this commission and can it not sunset? So if the the first time a company is a client, I get my 10% and year 10, if they're still a client, I still get 10% on that business. And even if the company really has no money saying, I won't take a draw, but just pay me commission only, right? That's another way to go about it. And in fact, I remember once I interviewed someone who I kind of shared the dream with him. I asked him to open an office for us. And I said, this is how we pay. This will be the draw and this will be the commission. He said, wow, that sounds like such a great arrangement. I might even do it for no draw. So the point is that can work for you if you're a good salesperson. (laughs) And if you're in a position where you can get by, you have some sort of cushion and that could be a good thing to propose to a boss. I mean, as far as what you're asking, if people are saying, you know, you're giving me 5% equity, but it's of nothing. If you believe in the dream and you think you can make an impact, I would take it because it it so often does work out. It so often does. And it often doesn't, but you didn't have any equity to begin with. So you had zero of zero. Now you have 5% of zero and that zero <laughs> may become something. A good point. It's yeah. a good point. Yeah. And it, and you never know which business is going to strike it big. And if you're there and you're doing the right things, it might be your business. And it does make the whole uh, experience so much more exciting, right? When there's that upside and you know, you, you made an impact, you're a big part of it. Yes. But at the same time, those roles require like 200% of your attention and your work. And, you know, that's really hard for people. I've seen a lot of people work really, really hard at companies and they don't. I mean, even I was on the board of a company for five years, a startup out of Israel, and we had the best time and it all felt like it was happening. And then it just didn't. So David and I always joke. It was like, oh yeah, like 5% of zero is zero. (laughs) It's really great. It is. And you're so right. But I'm thinking specifically of someone I know who started with a startup maybe four years ago. And I don't know what his exact percentage was, but he got equity. And there were very smart people. And he's a very smart person. They were all working incredibly hard. Now this company, it's worth billions. And he's made a ton of money because he stuck with it. So that, of course, can happen. And that's super, super exciting. So It is super exciting. Well, you were able to create this unicorn. And for everyone listening, Liz is the most humble, understated, under the radar rock star. You're one of Forbes' richest self-made women in America, which is mind-blowing. And you've created this incredible foundation, the Elizabeth Elting Foundation. Tell us a little bit about what you're working to achieve. Sure. So during my time at my company, 26 years, I I saw lots of issues, but I didn't have the time to focus on them. So the great thing now is I have this foundation. And what we do is we focus on helping support and empower women and marginalized populations. And we do it in a number of ways. We fund education, we fund entrepreneurship, we deal with heart disease and cancer and food needs and 
gun safety largely related to both women and marginalized populations. I mean, we deal with those other issues across the board, but often they are more likely to affect women and marginalized populations. So we're doing a lot of things and it's incredibly rewarding. And I'm such a big believer in people going and starting their own company, being entrepreneurs and creating a, a better world for themselves and all of us. Like for, I would say, you know, economic power is social power, social power is political power. And if people are creating these companies, they can really make the world a better place and achieve equity for all of us. So there's that whole reason for doing what we're doing. And it's just so fulfilling. So incredible. So you didn't have the book you wanted to read in your 20s, but now you've written the book you would have wanted to read in your 20s, Dream Big and Win, Translating Passion into Purpose and Creating a Billion Dollar Business, which is incredible and so just real and you can feel you in the book. Of course, we have to give a shout out to Jennifer Lancaster who introduced us in the first place because she's brilliantly amazing. And when people read this book, what do you hope they get from it? Like if there was one thing that you walk away feeling or learning from this book, what's really the main takeaway? Well, As you know, I'm a fan of people going and chasing their dreams, but I guess my main takeaway is go and do it, you know, be bold, dream big, take the risk. And if I can do it, you can too, because I really, I talk about all the things I did wrong, many of my weaknesses, and it still worked out for me. So that's why I say, go do those things, go take that risk, be bold, and Create your dream life because, you know, as Jamie Wengrove said, he's someone I, I quoted in a book, one of our earliest employees. If it's to be, it's up to me. I love that quote, but it was the idea that, you know, we all can make it happen. And as I said, if I can do it, you can too. Oh, so amazing. So for everyone listening, the blurbs on this book stem from Ariana Huffington, Michael Bloomberg, Sheryl Sandberg, Billie Jean King. The list goes on and on. I mean, you have every major icon of business, entrepreneurship. It's remarkable the people who you have supporting you and you have built a personal brand that people respect and admire and adore. And everyone who knows you feels that way. So when you think about your personal brand and how you have been able to earn social capital in the relationships that you've built throughout your career, what have you prioritized in those types of relationships in the way that you have navigated building your network and how you treat other people because you've done such an incredible job doing that. Well, that is so kind of you to say, coming from you, basically the maven, the world <laughs> expert on personal branding. And, you know, I'm not doing it so well or so right now. And I think a lot of us feel this way. And I know you talk about it in both your books. I remember reading, but it was all about my company and making sure my company had all the differentiating factors and was a wonderful company. But myself, (laughs) I was trying to replace myself and make myself irrelevant, you know, as we talked about. So it's interesting because I need to focus on it now. I'm still working on it. And 
I think that's an important lesson for all of us. I learned a lot about entrepreneurship and, and business during the 26 years I was an entrepreneur. And then I learned a lot about litigation for the five years I was in litigation. Then I learned a lot about philanthropy since I started my foundation. And now with this book, I'm learning about personal branding and getting out there and having one. And it's not easy. And, you know, as far as those wonderful people who wrote the endorsements. I mean, they're my heroes, like like you are, Elisa. And I think it's a case of just asking, right? Just asking for it because people can be so kind. And it's a case of just going for it, taking the risk, being bold and asking for it. And those people were wonderful to me to write the blurbs, but I think it's a lesson for, for me in business. Just doesn't hurt to ask, you never know. And then you're more likely to achieve your dreams. Yes. But you know, it's so funny because you touch on, and I'm so glad you did this because I see personal branding as a holistic view of a person. So there can be the, you know, social media side of it where, you know, you have thousands of followers and everyone knows who you are. Right. And that's certainly you have a personal brand, but then there's personal brand in your network and how you you know, carry weight in a meeting or how you make decisions or how people know they can depend on you because you're accessible and you're dependable and you deliver great work, right? So you have built an incredible personal brand. It's been in the real world, right? And you've been able to achieve to the highest level. And now you've been able to put everything you've learned in that book. So now you're delving into the other type of personal branding, which is more in the digital space and of course, promoting this book. But at the end of the day, I don't think anyone without a strong sense of self and purpose and mission can achieve at the level you have. And I think that that is to be celebrated. So I just wanted to say that. And the last question, always the same, how do you ultimately want to leave your mark? Like if there is a headline in the New York Times about Liz Elton, and you want to be remembered for something one day, what would it be? Oh, wow. Wow. I love so many things you just said. And I'm just taking <laughs> it all in and trying Take to- Take it all in. That. Take it all in. But yeah, you're right with the, you know, being yourself and we all have our personal brands. And, you know, one of my favorite quotes, because I am a quote lover and my dad and I used to talk about quotes in high school and for my graduation present from high school, he put together a calligraphied piece of art of all our favorite quotes. But Aww. on the bottom, above all, to thine own self be true, and it must follow is the night, the day, thou canst not be false to any man. But it, it's Shakespeare, and it's beautiful, and I love it. And it just made me think of that when you were saying that. But as far as legacy, legacy and, and leaving my mark, I'm really just trying to make the world a better place. I, I know it sounds very simplistic and corny, but you know, no, I, it, it sounds very hard actually and challenging <laughs> right, and right. not corny at all. I mean, I think obviously none of us can change everything because there's too much to change, but you know, I got to focus on creating my dream company and now I'm trying to focus on creating my dream world. And it's an, all different ways. There are so many causes. The longer I've been doing it, the more causes I'm seeing that I want to touch on, but it's really achieving equality for all yeah. because that's what needs to happen in this world. Well, you're doing such amazing work with the foundation and this book is incredible. And I'm so excited for people to really take your advice and apply it because 
Listen, I think, you know, we all read a lot of different books and, and we listen to different podcasts and read different articles. And sometimes it's in one ear at the other, but I, I really think the way that you've positioned your entire story and what you've been able to do is something that people can really, really run with and model behavior with and hopefully, you know, dream big and win. Thank you, Liz, for coming on the show. Thanks so much to you, Aliza. This was so much fun. I knew it would be. <laughs> Same. Same. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Leave Your Mark. If you want more career advice or tips on personal branding, make sure to pick up a copy of my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception. Want to land your dream job or kill it in your career? Don't forget about my first book, Leave Your Mark. If you want me to speak at your company or at an offsite, or if you need consulting services, please go to alizalick.com. I would love to connect with you there and on social media. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.